Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Rebecca. Sure appreciate that. I'm going to move this there. All right. So today we embark on Mark number seven, which is, for many, a struggle. Um, Go back in that passage and look, if you would, please, at verse 20. Look, if you would, please, at verse 20. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, isn't it? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And we usually pull from that passage the subject of prayer, don't we? That's usually what, you know, how we apply that passage of Scripture. But what is this one verse really referring to? What is it talking about? Why are the two or three people gathered together? Well, the context tells us there is a particular reason. It may include prayer. Prayer certainly needs to be a part of it. But there is something greater going on here than simply just prayer. And if we, if we relegate this verse simply to talk about prayer, we're missing what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. What these words are referring to is the gathering of people for the purpose of pursuing a brother or sister who has wandered willfully into sin for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration. Or, to put it another way, they are gathering because they are working out conflict that has arisen and they want to honor God by following His steps and guidelines. It's a beautiful picture, really. It's a beautiful picture of the church pursuing Christ because of the gospel when there is conflict or when there is sin. Ken Sandy, in his excellent book, The Peacemaker. Anyone here ever read The Peacemaker? All right, great, great book on the subject of biblical confrontation. It, it's not just about what takes place in the church as far as the steps that we're going to look at. He even talks about... Um, conflicts as it relates to the courts and that kind of stuff. But he has said this, where two or three have gathered, you will have conflict. <laughs> so guess what? How many people are there here today? I don't know. I haven't counted. All right. There's enough, there's enough here for conflict. Conflict is inevitable. It is going to happen. As much as we might say we love one another, and Scripture talks about the body of Christ loving one another and caring for one another, the reality is that we are still plagued with the flesh, right? We still have a bent toward sin. We're still walking through life with the lingering effects of our old man still with us, which means that there is going to be Conflict And life is full of conflict. Listen, one way to prove it is to go with your family in one vehicle and order at McDonald's. All right? And as a dad, I'm always the one at the window, right? And I'm like, all right, so what do you want? Well, I want that. And, you know, by the time you actually figure out what you want, everyone's upset at each other and we're really enjoying 
we're actually throwing nuggets all over the car, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? So, you know, so, I, I mean, it, conflict is inevitable. It happens. I mean, here's a, here's a scenario that could be very, very common. And I'm not speaking about any person in particular. A father is searching and wandering around the house, and he says, somebody has stolen my iPhone. See, I don't have an iPhone, so it can't be me, okay? And so he goes to his wife. What did you do with my iPhone? I don't know where it is. I didn't do anything with it. All right. Goes to his daughter. What did you do with my iPhone? I don't know. I've, you've taken my iPhone. I didn't take it, Dad. All right. Now there's only one other member in the family. So he goes to the son. Son, you stole my iPhone. Don't you know there's a lot of important stuff on there? I need my iPhone. It's like my life. And he says, I didn't steal it. I didn't take it. And he starts to cry and whimper. And, you know, you go out to the car and you search through the car and you find your iPhone has been tucked behind the chair underneath some weird cavity that's there. And you realize that you were the one that lost your iPhone. Okay? Not the shoe fits, wear it iPhone keys, whatever it might be. You understand, these are things that happen. These are natural, normal things that happen in the context of a family, are they not? Whether it's an iPhone, whether it's keys, whether it's, I don't know, anything else, okay? I had a friend growing up and his name was Spencer. Um, and he was my best buddy. We would play soccer together, we'd play, we'd play rugby, we'd play cricket, we'd go riding. Um, um, we do all sorts of stuff together. We just we would hang out. And there was one time we were playing soccer. It was the middle of the winter. It was wet and it was rainy and it was muddy. And I mean, we were just covered in mud. And he did something that no friend should ever do to another friend. And that is when I was leaning down in this big puddle of water, washing the mud off of me, he pushed me. I mean, what kind of friend would do something like that? Well, it all ended up with me getting upset with him, and for a year, we did not speak. Everyone say, ah, Yeah. And, and when we would see each other at school, we just kind of ignore each other, or we kind of glare at each other. And then one day, we're walking home from school. We happened to walk, you know, similar ways. It was through the woods, and um, happened to be next to each other. And I said, hey, Spence, what are you, what are you doing tonight? Well, nothing. You want to go riding? Sure. And it was over. I mean, the, the year was, was done, you know, and it was just like, I wasted a whole year of friendship because of my own pride, right? And, and so it's not just that conflict happens, but how we respond to conflict is also important. And understand that conflict isn't just something that takes place in a vacuum. In other words, it is often and usually tainted with sin. Life is full of conflict. It is rampant with sin. In particular, sin against others. And here are just, you know, some ways to think of, you know, that conflict has taken place. I remember when I first taught on this in, you know, as a, as a senior pastor in a church, um, I had two men who were in leadership in that church come up to me afterwards and they had tears in their eyes and they said, we wish we had known this sooner. We wish that someone had taken us to this passage and walked us through these principles sooner because they were reflecting of their time in leadership and decisions they made and, and ways that they had behaved, both personally as fathers, but also in the context of church. 
And they said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, it's not an issue of thanking me because there's anything in me. I was simply taking them to God's word. It's Jesus who is saying this stuff, right? It is Jesus who is speaking. And we need to be faithful to recognize that what Jesus says is important. What is taught in Matthew chapter 18, in particular verses 15 through 17, is commonly known as church discipline. And when you say church discipline, there are some images that conjure up in your mind. You kind of, first of all, maybe have this, this picture of this, this harsh puritanism, right? The kind of stuff that would produce uh, Hawthorne's scarlet letter. You know, some ugly preacher with black and white pointing his bony finger at someone else and saying, you know, you are condemned or something like that. I mean, to have that kind of a, of a picture that it's so harsh. Um, I think sometimes maybe you reflect over something like George Orwell's 1984 where it's this whole big brother thing. Like, you know, are we as the church supposed to be watching out and looking for, for sin and ah, chase after that person and confront them? Is that what's going on here? Um, I think, I mean, those are obviously extremes, but I think those taint our thinking of what church discipline is all about. So let's just step back a little bit and let's just ask ourselves, you know, what is, what is discipline? Because that word is somewhat harsh, it is somewhat rigid, it could sour our taste for what God has for us here. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, is discipline important? Let me ask you this, when you get on the plane... Are you hoping that your pilot is disciplined? Is that a good thing? Well, I don't want to have a disciplined pilot. I don't want him to be so mean and nasty. And... No, you want a pilot who's going to say, guys, it's time to sit down and put your seatbelt on because we've got turbulence ahead, right? You know, either that or you're going to be flying upside down as you go through there. And if you've ever been in a plane with heavy, heavy turbulence, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, Maybe, you know, you're saying, I have to go to the dentist and I have to get a filling. Do you want that dentist to be a disciplined dentist? Yeah, you know, sorry, missed, you know, got the wrong tooth, you know. I didn't know which one was what. No, you want someone who knows what they're doing. You want them to be careful. You want them to be purposeful. You want them to be disciplined in what they're doing because you want the job to be done well and right. When there's been a crime committed against you, are you not thankful that the police officer is disciplined and that the lawyer you may have involved is disciplined and the judge is acting according to proper discipline that relates to our law? Of course you are. I mean, discipline's a part of our culture. Without discipline, we would not have the organization and structure and really the comfort that we have. Now, we also think of discipline in the sense of exercise, right? Which means you have to work and you have to be diligent and all that kind of stuff. In other words, it takes effort to be disciplined. So if the church in America is not disciplined, it probably is evidence that it's lazy with the things of God. If God has commanded us to do some things and to be something, it may require our effort to be faithful in doing that. You understand? You agree? Okay. That means we can't be lazy. We've got to take our responsibility that God has given us. Now, think about discipline uh, as it relates to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Two kinds of discipline that are really talked about here. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, think of, think of this verse in a in a linear fashion. 
that there is this line, there is this path that God wants you to walk down through life. And as you're walking down through life, He is, he is teaching you what this path looks like and, and where you need to walk and how you need to walk and maybe the kind of attitudes you need to have. And so there is this teaching that is taking place. There's this training that is taking place. But because of our sinful nature, because of the struggles of the flesh, oftentimes we step off the path, do we not? And usually when you step off the path, at least in our context, many times you find yourself in a ditch. So now you're trying to get through this ditch, right? And it is good for someone to come along and to help you and say, hey, did you know that you're in a ditch? You say, well, duh, Pastor Rod, of course I knew I was in a ditch. Well, not everyone who has stepped off the path spiritually knows that they are off the path spiritually. They've been deceived. They, are, they have clouded judgment, but they are there. That's where the next word comes in. What does it say? Reproof. Right? There's training and then or teaching. Reproof simply is, is speaking the situation to the person that it involves. You're saying, hey, you're in a ditch. All right? And you shouldn't be in the ditch. You don't need to be in the ditch. Then there's correction, and correction is saying, all right, now that you're, if you, you know, let's recognize you're in the ditch, recognize it, acknowledge it, own, own it, but here's how you get back on the path. That's correction, get back. And not only get back on the path, but then learn how you got off the path. You with me so far? Then there's the training now in righteousness. So we have two kinds of discipline. The teaching and the training in righteousness are formative discipline. It's forming you. It's fashioning you. It's, it's pushing you down a path to be Christ-like. Then there is also the corrective discipline, which is this reproof and this correction that's getting you back on the path. Now, is formative discipline a bad thing? Huh? No. Now, it might feel that way if you're just kind of getting pummeled with truth and you're just kind of getting hammered with it. But the point is, as you're walking through your, your Christian life, you're just constantly learning, constantly growing, and constantly being shaped to become like Jesus, right? But the corrective discipline at times can feel harsh because it means that you have to acknowledge that you have sinned, that you've strayed, that you've wandered. And so it, it can feel harsh, although is it really harsh? It depends, right? If a person is coming to you in a Christ-like way, it still might feel harsh because they're identifying a problem, but it really is in the big picture an act of love. And that is what God is calling us to, and that's what he's saying. The Word of God is necessary for that. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 15. Sorry, Matthew chapter 18. All right, so we, there is discipline. Discipline's a good thing. Um, it's not all a bad thing, although oftentimes when we think of discipline, in particular if it's connected to the word church, we're thinking negatively. But it isn't necessarily a negative thing. In fact, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to be talking about the next mark, which is biblical discipleship, which is really formative discipline. Okay? Growing in Christ and, and pushing along those lines. It's all good. Now, it's important for us to see now, Matthew 18, verse 12 and following. So, let's, let's read this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? 
If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it, uh, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, the importance here of reading this is this is the passage that is right on the heels of Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which is what we call church discipline. What's going on here? The shepherd is pursuing the sheep that has what? What does it say? Gone astray. And the result of it going astray could be what? That it... It's a word that begins with P. It, it might perish. So this is, this is pretty important, right? The shepherd cares enough not just to say, well, pss, I still have 99 so forget about the one. No, he leaves the 99 and he goes after this one that has wandered away and potentially could perish unless he lovingly pursues that. Now it's interesting that this, Jesus uses this illustration of the one lost sheep. He uses it here in the context of the church. He uses it in another occasion in the context of those who are lost and who are needing to be coming or not need to come into the fold. Same illustration, different application here is how Jesus uses this, right? So this is important to see because what is going on here in verses 12 to 14 is an act of love. All right, so it is, you might want to say, a loving church caring for her wandering sheep. This is the spirit by which we need to come to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now here we have... A, a church, a gathering of sheep, you might want to say. And when one wanders away, when one falls into sin, when one pursues sin and, and finds themselves in a ditch because of that, it is a loving thing for that church family then to pursue that person and to restore them back on the path so that they're walking toward Christ's likeness once again. Right? With me so far? Okay. I'm just trying to help you, uh, first of all, think of the logic of what's going on here and the flow that's taking place. Now, why is it so important that we obey Matthew 18, 15 through 17? First of all, it's because it is a command. Jesus commands this. And someone might say, well, I don't like this passage of Scripture. And I, you know what? I, I can sympathize with you in a sense by saying, this is, seems harsh depending on how you are interpreting it and how you're seeing it fleshed out. But Jesus commands it. This is what he's saying you need to do. He says you need to go. Another passage of scripture he talks, um, uh, well Paul talks there about not associating with someone um, who is walking in sin. Uh, Paul also talks about rebuking that person if they're teaching uh, false teaching. There, there certainly is this command dynamic that is important for us. So we have to understand, if Jesus is commanding it, guess what? We're responsible. And as a church, we're responsible to listen to what Jesus has to say and not allow it to be tainted by the world's thinking or maybe some author's thinking that has painted a picture that might distort our understanding of what God is accomplishing through his word here. The second reason why this is important is because of the health of the church. Right? Ephesians chapter 5, we're told there that, that Jesus' goal with his bride is to present her what? 
pure and spotless and without blemish. His goal is to refine that church. And so if we are not exercising discipline, biblical church discipline, then the church is not going to be pure. It's not going to have the kind of power that it could have. It's not going to move in the way that is pursuing Christ-likeness. It will have lost its, its real purpose. And sadly, friends, American church culture doesn't want to deal with this command. They want to kind of twist it and turn it and say, well, you know, we see it there, but, but Jesus really isn't important, isn't, isn't thinking about the details of what's going on. He just wants the spirit of this. So what he really wants is us just to exercise grace, which is another way of saying we don't want to follow what God says. We just want to be nice. When at times, discipline isn't necessarily um, nice. It feels difficult. It's awkward, right? Here's the third thing, third reason why it's important. It's important because we truly love that brother or sister in Christ. If you have a child in your family that wanders, is struggling with sin, and is off in the ditch, and as a parent you say, huh, I don't care. They can do what they want. That could communicate a lack of love toward that child. Now, I'm not saying that you know, parents, as parents, you, you, know, you might get to the point where you say, you know, we've dealt with this, we've dealt with this, we've dealt with this, and we've come to a point where we've, we've done, we've exhausted our resources. That's a little different. But listen, as parents, we care for our children. And as a church, we care for those that are part of the body of Christ. As we look back on the importance of church membership, part of church member, membership is saying, listen, we're joining ourselves to this body of believers, and we welcome and we want your caring love and your discipline at times when we walk astray, when we fall into sinful habits, because we all sin and we all struggle, right? So we welcome that. We want that because we don't want to find ourselves stuck in the mud of a ditch without the ability to get out. We need each other, and so it's important for the, the love of one another. Now, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, uh, Rebecca read, and in there we have four steps that we'll call four steps of church discipline. I'm just going to read the passage here, and uh, I just want you to note, uh, highlight the steps as we go along, right? If your brother sins against you, that's kind of like the, the, here's the problem, all right? Now, there, there are four ways you can handle this. Here's the first one, step one, one-on-one. -on -one. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, all right? One-on-one, -on -one. you alone, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Step number two. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is two or three on one. And we're going to, um, we'll, next week we'll deal with step two through step four. Um, but just quickly here, you know, the witnesses are there, not necessarily to be doing the confronting now. They're there to witness both the confronter and the person who's being confronted to make sure that the conf confrontation is, is appropriate and right, as well as the details of what's going on, okay? Then there's the, the, the church on one, because he says, listen, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the what? 
church. This is the Gospels. Jesus here is using the word church. Again, I think this is the second time he uses the word church in the Gospels. Okay? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is the world on one. Of course, the Gentile and tax collectors were considered to be the lowest of the low, right? In other words, they are sinful. They are um, not walking with God. But remember, the whole point here is restoration. And so when, it's, when I put there the world on one, what happens here is the person stepped out under the protection of the church, and now they're in the realm where Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and they, they are getting bombarded because of their unrepentant um, sin. Okay? That's the world on one. And he says, Then truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, I'm giving you authority as a church to carry these things out. Again, I, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them and my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right? So, here are the, the four steps then, right? One on one, two or three on one, the church on one, the world on one. Where is most of our conflict? What arena, what step is it going to take, is it going to be in? It's going to be one on one. Most conflict is going to be pursued and resolved in step one. This is where we live most of the time, okay? And on a few occasions, there's going to need to be a more formal step to bring two or three in, all right? For our purposes today, we want to focus in on the one-on-one. -on -one. Next week, we will deal with the last three steps, and we'll see what that has to, what that looks like. All right, so to help us this morning, I've come up with three scenarios to talk about, okay? And I tried to, I tried to make this uh, gateway-specific, um, but not using specific names, all right? So, let's talk about Sally, the children's ministry worker. Here's just some real scenarios that could happen. You are a children's ministry worker. You've been scheduled to teach a class once every month, and your assistant teacher is Sally. She has been a believer for over five years, and during that time has shown herself to be a good worker where she has attended. Recently, however, when it is your turn to teach... Sally has been calling you late on Saturday night to let you know that she will not be able to help the next day. A few times she has waited until Sunday morning early to call you. This last week she neither called you nor showed up. And you're wondering what is going on in her life. Why is she being so irresponsible? And you could probably fill a whole bunch of other things in there too. All right? Is that a possible scenario? Absolutely. Is it something that could cause conflict? Is it delicate? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Second illustration. Someone's phone goes off in church. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. I love you, Donna. Just picking on you. All right. Second one. All right. Joe, the setup crew worker. Joe has been part of the church plant since the beginning. He is not in leadership, but he is eager to help. He feels that his greatest ministry is to be part of the setup teardown crew that you have that you're also a part of. Each Sunday as you meet to begin the setup, Joe seems to take charge and gives you instructions that he expects you to follow. You really don't mind because you think, well, at least there's someone who knows what is going on. 
On this Sunday, however, you're asked to be in charge of putting the tables back on the other side of the room. These tables over here, back over here, okay, just so you know, okay? Now, you have done it many times before, but always with someone else and didn't realize that there was a system to how the table should be left. So you go about being diligent with a good attitude and are thankful that you have the opportunity to serve. Then Joe shouts at you in an ugly, frustrated tone, what do you think you're doing? Those tables are supposed to be stacked in twos. How long have you been doing this? Don't you listen? Is that a possible scenario? It's possible. Okay? Hasn't happened. These aren't real stories, just in case you're wondering. Okay? But it's possible. All right? I'm going to be asking you in just a minute what sin has taken place. Here's the last one. Billy, the San Francisco businessman. Billy, an active member of the church, is a businessman who works in San Francisco for a financial company. Your job often takes you to San Fran, and on this day, you have a business lunch in a nice downtown restaurant. When you enter the restaurant, you think you notice someone familiar. It looks like someone you know from Sunday school class. Billy and his wife attend regularly. You're not sure because of the fact that his back is to you and the light is dark. And as you sit down at your table, you are distracted by the fact that this man, Billy, at least you think it's him, is behaving in a very flirtatious manner with one of the ladies at his table. It continues and you are becoming very uncomfortable. A few minutes later, as you sit with your clients, Billy and the others at his table get up and leave. And now you can clearly see that it is he and he is still in a rather giddy mood. He doesn't see you, but as he leaves, he gives this lady a long goodbye hug. Is that a potential scenario? Okay, I've just given you three. We could come up with all sorts that might be real scenarios, okay? These are all made up. I don't know any of these people, never been to that restaurant, okay? Just saying, this is all fictitious for the purpose of helping us hang our hats honest scenario to say, what do we need to do here? How do we go about it? Let's just talk about Sally's situation. Matthew 18 begins, uh, verse 15, if your brother sins against you. Now, so the first thing we have to ask ourselves is this, if, right? Is there something going on here that means that there should be confrontation? Then it says, if your brother sins against you. What sin has taken place in these scenarios? What about Sally's situation? This is audience participation time, right? What about Sally's situation? What sin has taken place? Negligence, all right? What else? On the part of Sally, right? Okay, what else? Inconsideration. Laziness. What else? We don't really know until we confront. You're saying you don't really know until you confront. Okay. So there are a lot of scenarios that are popping into your head, right? That this could be. All right? Can you think of a scenario that if you knew this was true, you'd say, "Ah, okay, that makes sense." I don't have I don't have some some, you know, big thing to come in here and win the day, right? I'm just Can you think of anything? All right, could be a family member in the hospital. What else? All right. She could have morning sickness. 
she could have morning sickness. It would be a very, very long morning, drawn out morning sickness, right? Personal issues at home. Okay, personal issues at home. All right, good. So there, there, there seems to be, and, and you certainly, if you are this person, are saying to yourself, what, what is going on here? And your natural tendency is to think what? It's not to think the best, it's to think the worst, right? So there may even be sin taking place where? In your heart. <laughs> okay? Because of the scenario. This is the reality. When conflict happens, we often think, well, the other person, but what's going on with you? Okay? Because you might, you might sit down and talk with her and find out, you know, what she might say, you know, I, for whatever reason, I'm just really, really fearful. And so I've been avoiding doing this. And I'm wrong. I shouldn't just leave you hanging. But there's some things there. And you might say, oh, man, I didn't know. If I'd known, I would have reached out. And I would have ministered to you. And you see what I'm saying? So, so yes, she may have been completely wrong. But unless you talk, unless you confront, unless you bring it up, you may not know. And you actually may cause more damage to her. See, in that context, you're thinking ministry is... The, cat, the class, it's the kids. It's not necessarily thinking the person who is helping me. All right? What about, what about Joe and the setup crew? What's the sin there? Do, 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 do. Pride? Okay, what else? Anger? Inconsideration? Say what? Lack of uh, all right, lacking a loving attitude. Okay. Joe feels humiliated. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's kind of a public thing. Although it was said to one person, there was a public thing going on. So you have a number of issues that are taking place. Right? Complicates things. All right. Control issues. Control issues right? Um, what about Billy in San Francisco? What's the sin that's going on there? Lust. All right, all right, yeah, lust. What else? Disrespect. Disrespect for his wife? It could be his sister. Probably isn't his grandma. <laughs> all right, all right. Now, I, let me tell you something. When I was when I was in college, you know, they had a. They had a you know, no physical contact rule where I went to school. And I remember one time there was this couple and you know, we were waiting to go to dinner and they were just kind of like all over each other. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Why is, why is no one saying something? It's just like right out there and everyone. And there's, you know, there's teachers and all that kind of stuff around. What's going on? You know, I didn't know they were brother and sister. But in your heart, as you're thinking, you're like, you know, this just seems wrong. It seems like it's going against what, you know. So there always needs to be in us this attitude of, I may not have all the facts, right? Or there may be something going on here that their behavior is simply the fruit of something that's deeper. And this person actually may need some help, may need some counsel and some guidance, all right? So, so these scenarios just help us. Now, there's more that I'm sure we could come up with here. But let's just press on. Whom are we to confront? According to this passage, what does it say? Whom are we to confront? It says, if your brother sins against you. So if this has nothing to do with ladies then, is that right? 
Is that what this is saying? Now, the word brother is a general word to describe those who are part of the body of Christ, all right? It's a, it's a male, it's a masculine word that is used collectively for everyone, right? So if your brother sins against you. So these instructions, although to some degree, what we're going to talk about here can be applied to those that are unbelievers, apply specifically to those who are part of the body of Christ, right? And... As we further discover in New Testament, the church is not some, some nebulous, unseen thing out there. The church is a local gathering of called out believers. So we're talking about the physical gathering church um, interacting with each other. All right, 1 Corinthians 5.11. I think a very important passage of scripture. Now, I am writing you or writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Interesting, he says that. Someone calls themselves a believer, a child of God. They're part of the church. If he is guilty, that's important, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I, I think the, the intent here is not just to say this person's guilty, there it is, I think guilty and unrepentant. Right? If you compare scripture with scripture here, obviously the goal of Matthew 18 is restoration. It is repentance. The point here is, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking there about a man who was committing incest, and it seemed that the church was okay with it. In fact, even proud about the fact that we have someone in our midst that's doing that. And here's the response. Okay. So there's clearly instructions here directed at the church about those who are a part of the church and who identify themselves as brothers or sisters in Christ. Right? See that there? All right. Then the next question we have is this. How are we going to confront? Now... I didn't plug this in here, but we should make sure, as best we, as best we can, that, that it says, if your brother sins against you. All right, there, are, there is conflict that can take place within the body of Christ that may not be sinful, right? Someone might accidentally bump you as you're going to get coffee, and you might spill a little bit on your hand. That may not have been a sin, unless, of course, they are being extremely... Um, inconsiderate and just going all over the place and don't care about anyone else except themselves. That could be. But there are some things that happen that are just conflict. That are just, it's just about bumping each other and being together as, as people. You with me there? Okay? But So we do need to identify, or at least in our minds think, you know, is this sin, right? How are we going to do this? And this is where we're going to spend um, a good bit of our time here um, uh, this morning. All right? We're told here, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if we don't go, we disobey the Lord and we prove that we don't love our brother. Here's the first thing. We must confront quickly. Quickly. Now, quickly can be, um, can be a nebulous term. Alright? Um, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, he's coming soon, right? Um, I think there's even a passage that talks about his coming quickly. Uh, it's been a couple of thousand years, right? Um, I think a passage of scripture that may be helpful for us would be Matthew 5, 23. Um, 
it says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, so in that immediate moment, if you, if you know that there's a problem between you, a brother or sister in Christ, do it then. Go to that person. Resolve that conflict. Do it quickly. All right, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Um, um, so the, the, the idea here is to go. This word go is in the, the present imperative tense in the Greek and could be translated be going. So there's this idea of, of you're, already, you're already going. You're already, when the, when the sin has taken place, someone has sinned against you, you're already thinking, okay, I have a responsibility to go. I'm embracing the responsibility and I'm already thinking about, all right, I need to go. Now the question is, exactly what am I going to do? Let's go quickly. Secondly, we must confront purposefully. Purposefully. Matthew 15, 18 indicates that my approaching the sinning brother is for the purpose of confrontation. And here's, what, here's how we kind of wiggle out of some of this stuff. Too often, we confront, or when we confront, we, we wait for the right opportunity. Have you talked to that person? No, it wasn't the right opportunity. Okay, so you're waiting for that window, but what does that window look like? And sometimes that window opens up, but you're fearful, and you don't say anything, and so the right opportunity passes. So now you're waiting for the second right opportunity, right? So we might even say that sometimes we, we engage the person in conversation about unrelated topics. Like, hey, you know, did you see the football game? Yeah, the football game is great. Yeah, it was a great touchdown. Yeah, it was a great touchdown. You know, I have something against you. I mean, you know, if that isn't a, I mean, the, the point here is if, 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 if there's confrontation that needs to take place, then probably what you need to do is rather than being deceptive or kind of niggling in with it, just say, hey, you know what, um, can we talk? There's something I need to talk with you about that's just really important that my heart is burdened about. And, and get on with the topic rather than going here, 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 okay? or just waiting for the right opportunity. I think people respect that, all right? So you may even have to set up an appointment to do that, okay? Um, number three, we must confront verbally, all right? It says, go and tell him um, his fault between you and him alone. So I think the primary method of telling here is convincing that person. It's, the word means convincing someone through words Tell that person through words, verbally. Now, one of the ways we can avoid that, obviously, is trying to use other mediums. And sometimes those other mediums can be helpful, depending on the conflict, depending on the situation. But most of the times, they are substitutes for the real thing. All right. Now, how many of you woke up this morning and said, I just can't wait for this topic. I can't wait, because I want to learn how to go confront people. I just, I'm, I've got my hat, I've got my book, and I'm ready to confront. I mean, we don't think in those terms, right? In fact, when, it, when it's the subject of confrontation comes up, we're thinking, uh, can someone else do it? Right? And even if we do it, we're like, how can we do it with, with least resistance? So it isn't necessarily um, verbally that we want to do, right? But listen, the best kind of confrontation is confrontation that uses words, and in particular, the Word of God. That's where Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is 
living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so the word spoken in in relation to the issue that is before you can be very, very helpful. Now, I'd step back and ask you to be careful there. Don't use the word of God as a weapon. It needs to be used carefully as a tool to identify sin and to help that person to see the fact that they are in a ditch or that they have wandered or there is some kind of a sinful um, bent toward their life or maybe it's just some way in which they've, they've sinned against you. But certainly the Word of God needs to be a part of that. Number four, we must confront personally. That means personally, physically, um, kind of goes along with the idea of verbally um, you know, writing a letter, writing an email, talking on the phone may have their place but are not the best personally go and tell. If, I mean it's kind of hard to go and tell if you're staying in the same place and doing it. So there's movement there, ideas face to face. Of course in Christ's day they didn't have the mechanisms that we have Okay, but you understand there's something about speaking face to face that is better than maybe the written word um, or even on the phone because if there's something that is misunderstood or needs to be corrected or qualified it can be done at that particular moment. I realize that sometimes conflict is such that even a face-to-face conversation can get muddy, right? Ever been there before? All right, But um, it can get even muddier when someone says, see you put it here in print. How did you put this in print? You know, I didn't mean it that way and Right. So it's, 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 it can get muddy. So I think the best thing to do is to do it personally. And I think that would be the tone and the spirit of what's going on here. The next one is this. We must confront privately. Go and tell him his fault. What? Between you and him alone. So, um, probably the best place to confront someone is not during our break time on Sunday morning. Okay. However, that might be the right time if the conflict took place, let's say maybe before church started, and you just couldn't get to that person right away, and you need to pull them off into a private place, and that's the only thing, you know, we'll be quick about it. But don't make it a habit of saying, well, I'm going to deal with this kind of stuff when we get to church. Because remember, this is simply a location where we're gathering. The church is not just something that happens on a Sunday morning. The church is, all right? So, being purposeful, as we talked about before, but making sure that it's private. Uh, Proverbs 25, verses 9 and 10. Turn there, if you would, please. Proverbs 25, verses 9 and 10. says this. Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another secret, lest he who hears you bring shame on you, and your ill repute have no end. I think one of the guiding principles that we have with this whole issue of biblical confrontation and with what's taking place with Matthew 18 in particular, uh, with these steps as they unfold, is the, the, the net of need to know should always be kept to that level of each step. In other words, if it's between you and him alone, or you and she alone, that's the net of, of knowledge. And if there's a resolution between you know, two people there, 
then great. It's over. It's done with. You've won your brother, it says. If two or three witnesses are there, then it stays within those two or three witnesses. Ultimately, if it has to go to the church, then it does become public. But you're, you're always trying to keep the net smaller because you care for that person. You don't want to have to go down the next step. You want to make, make sure you can resolve this in, in the closest way possible. Okay? So you want to make sure you're being faithful here to do this privately. And so that also means that we need to be careful about where we do this. Okay, so that's why doing it between services, or sorry, between services, between our, our, our break, or during our break time may not be best because there may be other people that can hear your conversation. And it's supposed to be a private deal. Okay? Um, now, it's also possible, remember, if your brother sins, that you actually talk to Sally and you find out, you know, her life is just upside down. And yes, she should have called you. But you find out there's some, some really horrible things that she's going through, but they're not the kind of thing that you want everyone to know. And you'll be thankful that you went one-on-one -on -one and you dealt with that, and now you have an opportunity to minister. Okay? Um, it's also with, you know, with, uh, um, with Billy's scenario here, you know, this restaurant in, in, in San Francisco. Um, you know, you may not have the whole picture. You may not you may think you do. We fill in the gaps with a lot of things, right? But you may not. So it's always healthy and right and biblical and it always honors God if you make sure you're going privately to begin with. Now, it does bring up some questions of what if this is a, you know, a young lady or a lady speaking to a man and you've got to obviously apply some wisdom to those contexts. Um, you want to make sure that, that uh, you know, if there is some, some mechanism, depending on what it is, that you are, if you're married, you're relying on your spouse or something like that. Okay, you're, you're thinking through that. Um, but certainly you want to keep this as private as is biblically possible. Okay? Number six, we confront reluctantly. Okay? We're not, we're not saying, oh, yay, great, good, I get to confront. Um, we do it reluctantly. I mean, someone might say to a person as he's confronting, listen, John, I would, I would rather be broken down on the freeway than be here talking to you about this problem. But I must, if I'm to be obedient to the Lord and to honestly show true love to you. We're doing it reluctantly. But we're doing it because we are desiring to be faithful servants of God. The Apostle Paul he speaks to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians in verse 4. He has this kind of a tone. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Okay, there's, there's a reluctance, but there's a need to be faithful to God. Number seven, we must confront compassionately. This is where um, 2 Corinthians 2 4 says, The wounds of a friend are faithful. Um, and then also uh, Galatians 6 1, which is actually going to be for uh, the next couple, next three or so that we look at. Um, but Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Um, so we need to pursue, we need to, let's put it this way, we need to put ourselves in their shoes and ask, them, ask yourself the question, 
how would I like to be treated if I were in their place? Uh, maybe you are the one that has sinned. How would you like to be treated by this person who's confronting you? The offended will likely listen to the person, or the offender will likely listen to the person who demonstrates that he truly cares by asking that particular question. Again, we must confront gently, Galatians 6.1. Again, that word gentleness is there. We proceed with gentleness and care as if we are working with a delicate, broken bone. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. That word restore is a word that is used to describe the mending of a broken bone. Anyone here ever broken a bone before? I broke my wrist right here. And I remember going into the doctor and he says, this is going to hurt, but I have to do it. I didn't say, well, how in the world can you do that? Giving me pain. No, he knew what he had to do in order to fix my arm, right? So my, it was a soccer injury. My coach was there, so I grabbed my coach's arm, and then the doctor went, and he reset it. All right? It was painful. It hurt. Did I enjoy it? No. Am I now thankful for it? Yes. It was the right thing to do. It was a loving thing to do. Okay? So, um, but he did it gently. He wasn't mean about it. Okay? Restoration is difficult and it needs to come with the spirit of gentleness. Number nine, we must confront humbly. All right, and last part there of Galatians 6 1 keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Here's the deal although you may be the one who's confronting right now, one day you may be the person who is being confronted. So consider yourself. Consider the possibility that as you proceed even in this confrontation, that your method, that your attitudes and your opinions may become sinful. If someone sinned against you, you naturally have what kind of response toward that person? A positive one? Thank you so much for sinning against me. Oh, this is great. Man, we get the opportunity of having confrontation. Is that what happens? No. Person sins against you, and you likely are wrestling with your sinful struggles in your heart, right? So when you go to confront, now you may be guilty of sinning against your brother in how you come and confront them. So you've got to be humble. You've got to recognize your own bent toward sinfulness and the struggles that are on your heart. Number 10, we must confront carefully. Carefully here. I'm going to read a few verses of Scripture. Let me give them to you first, and then I'll read them. Proverbs 10, 19. Proverbs 10, 19. Proverbs 29, verse 20. And then Proverbs 25, verse 11. 10, 19, 29, 20, 25, verse 11. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. When words are many, transgression, or you might want to say sin, is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Next one. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. A word fitly spoken 
is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Apples of gold, beautiful apples, in a beautiful setting. So the confrontation you give should be brought in a right setting. You get the picture there? Choice words, healthy words, good words, but words that get to the point of the matter, that are honest, that are compassionate, that are purposeful. Number 11, we must embrace this reality prayerfully. And I give you carefully, carefully and prayerfully. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So it certainly involves prayer, doesn't it? Now, guys, I realize that, you know, you're probably, you know, when, when this, someone sins against you, you're probably not, you know, pulling out your little card that has all these 11 things on it and trying to figure it out. But these are, these certainly are, are I might want to say, guidelines, litmus tests, grids that, that you need to take what it is you're doing and filter it through. And listen, we're, we're called to be faithful to this one-on-one -on -one confrontation. We could be wrong. And, and our, our approach of that person needs to have that attitude of, you know, I could be wrong in this, but even though it seems very, very clear that I'm not, I need to be humble enough to recognize there's something else that's going on here. Okay? All right? Now, why are we to confront? Let me just summarize it. We've already looked at this uh, a little bit here. Number one, it says to gain, to win over. All right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It is my experience, and as I've talked with other people who have pursued biblical confrontation in a Christ-like manner, that when they go and they're honest and they do things in a Christ-like way, that they don't, they don't only gain a brother in the sense of things are resolved, but there is a trust that is established because of a, a proper way in which someone came to them and talked with them. So you, you've, you've, you've gained, you've, you've, you've blessed now and brought into your relationship someone as a result of being faithful to this command. Secondly, based on Galatians 6.1, um, to restore. So we're, we're, we're to confront, to gain our brother, to restore our brother or sister. And then the last thing here from Luke 17, and it includes Matthew 18, is... Um, it says to encourage repentance. Here's what it says in Luke 17. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So we are, we are to encourage repentance, which of course is the turning away from sin or turning away from idols and turning completely to Jesus and, and focusing our attention on Him. And, and friends, this is where the gospel kicks in. And this is where the gospel is for every day. And this is where we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Is there anything that Jesus has done for us that liberates us then to live for Him even when there is conflict? Absolutely, it's the gospel. Because of the gospel, I can say to myself, I also was going this way in my sinfulness, in my lostness, and now I have Christ. But even now that I am one of his children, there are still times I turn back to idolatry, turn back to sinful patterns, right? 
And I need the gospel to remind myself once again that my relationship is not based on the good things I do to prove to God my relationship with Him. It is based solely on the fact that Jesus has welcomed me into His family by His sacrifice on the cross. And that I don't have to perform in order for God to say, oh, okay, you're, you're a good kid in my family. No, we are citizens. We are, we are heirs in His family. That never changes. And we need the gospel to remind us that we are just like our brother and sister in Christ, that we still struggle with sin, and that we are a community of believers that loves one another to the point that we're willing to help one another in our sinfulness. It's a whole attitude and approach that backs up why we do this. This is difficult. It can be abused. But it's biblical and it's right. Okay? Now, let's have a word of prayer and we're going to take a moment here uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Okay? So let's do that. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we know that conflict will come. And Lord, we know that sometimes it can be ugly. We know that in our hearts, likely the last thing we want to do is to come to those people in a Christ-like way. Lord, oh, how we fight against our flesh or we allow our flesh to have freedom. We rationalize it, we justify it. But Lord, help us as the ones who are confronting, Lord, to be just as fashioned by your truth as those who are wandering. Lord, we need you. We need your gospel. We need that life that only comes through you. And we need that divine perspective. We need you as our Savior. And Lord, today as we have gone over these principles. Lord, I ask that there's some things that we need to do in our lives, maybe in a relationship, to restore it, Lord, to pursue you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to do that. As we celebrate this, this Lord's table, Lord, may we be reminded of the gospel, but in particular, the gospel that came to us when you drew us to yourself, when you breathed new life into us, Lord, that that was all the result of you hanging and dying on a cross for our sins. That, Lord, you are our substitute and you have paid the sin for us and we are now gathered together as your family, celebrating that, rejoicing in this new life that we have with you. So, Lord, we ask that you now bless us and strengthen us, Lord, through this. In your precious name, amen. And as Ilya comes to, to play for us, um, let me just invite you, if, if you're here, and uh, you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and uh, you know you you um, you would embrace yourself, or consider yourself to be part of God's family. We we invite you to come and to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Um, we uh, will walk up here row by row, get the elements, go back to our seats, and we'll actually take the elements together. Okay, so let's do that right now.
Jesus took the bread and he said eat this in remembrance of me let us do that together and then he took the juice and he said drink this in remembrance of me let us do that together Lord we thank you for confronting us with our sin, for loving us, Lord, enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, when we were undeserving. We are blessed by your grace and your mercy, and we're privileged to have new life with you. Lord, help us to live in such a way, Lord, that you are glorified and that your will is done through us. Your name, amen. Amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love. 
a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall sins and my sorrows.